This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I am joined today by Will Bushman, who is our Director of Student Ministries. It's great to be back. Hey, it's good to have you. I think last time I was here, I was babyless. Babyless? That's right. You are a new papa. I am, so... How's that going? It's going. How, so how many weeks right now? Oh, that's a tough question. I think it's seven weeks. All right. Has she found her lungs yet? No, no, she's really good. All right. So tell us, tell us, tell us a little about being uh, a new papa, all the experience. What's what's the highlights? Yeah. Well, we had Morgan and I had a daughter named Everett on August thirteenth, um, and it's been a wild ride. It's been pretty much what everyone tells you and more. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's been really good. So like, she sleeps yeah. at night already. You know, she's not a real screamer. Yet. You know, yet. You know, so it's like. <laughs> She's kind of treating us with kitty gloves, which I think she knows we needed mm-hmm. at this stage in our lives. So I think she's easing us into parenting, which is great. But That's awesome. It has been like that. Okay, here we are looking at each other at 3 a.m. And this is what life is now. You know, like when that when they gave you your baby and said, okay, you're going to go home now. And you didn't have any of the hospital nurses. What was that feeling like? Well, they didn't do much. Our hospital was great. You know, shout out Boca Regional. Great. Rat's Mouth was a great place to give birth. Rat's Mouth uh, is Spanish. Boca, Boca Raton. Raton. All right. They, they, they should know that. Uh, but the nurses weren't really as hands-on, you know? You hear, like, your grandma talk, and they, like, pretty much took the baby for seven days. But, you know, Everett was just in our room, and, like, we were doing everything at that stage. Like, they were there just in case. But but it's kind of crazy how they just send you home with a child mm-hmm. that's yours forever. Yeah. I remember when we were leaving with Caleb, it was like, can you come with us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they didn't quiz me. No questions. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I've had to do a lot more for a lot less <laughs> yeah, right. know, things to be approved of. Yeah. And yet here you are with life that is will be sustained by you and your wife. Pretty wild. I got all kinds of cards in my wallet that I had to, like, take crazy tests for yeah. and everything else. This is like, here's a living human being with an eternal soul. Yeah, and all you needed, this was all you needed, was a car seat that fit in your car. That's it. Like, she yeah. walked us down, and she definitely made sure I put it in, and she heard the click. But that was it. <laughs> That's all I needed. All right, you're, you're good to be a yeah, parent like, now. Yeah, On you your go. way. Here you go. You got to, <laughs> I actually had to tell the one nurse, like, because I think they were just being respectful. You know, this could have been, I don't think they looked at us more like, this was probably their fourth child. I don't think we gave that vibe. <laughs> but I had to be, like, to the one nurse, like, hey, like, treat me like I've never had a child because I haven't. Like just, I'm just going to watch you. Like, let's do the diaper one just as a group, you and me. You know, I'm going to watch you. Just commentate. Like, walk me through what you're doing. She's like, okay. And then we did the swaddle. I'm like, okay, this is good. Like, I got some more questions. Like, and then she just... Let how me how are you off. with the diaper now? I'm really good. All right. That's, I mean, that's all I can pretty much do. Well, the reason Will is joining us today, Mark is battling cancer, as you know. He's been taking medications, and so he has two different treatments that he takes along with a lot of meds. Uh, but he is having some side effects from one of those medications that has caused him, as you've heard last week, his voice to get hoarse. And today, uh, his mouth is just generally sore. And so he's having and having problems speaking. So 
Continue your prayers for Mark. Continue lifting him up. Um, encouragements are always welcome. Uh, I know that he appreciates those. Those are medicine to his soul. And so uh, we're thinking of you, Mark, missing you here uh, as we are jumping into a new series on the first epistle of John. So First John. Uh, John is going to write five books in the Bible. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes the book of Revelation. And he also writes these three epistles that you find toward the the end of your Bible, and First John has five chapters, so we're going to cover those over five weeks, and there's some really good stuff in here. Yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, I've like I told you before we started recording, I've never sat down and read the book of First John by itself, and so it's kind of been a wild ride thinking about this just as we're heading this new series, which is exciting. Yeah, and so when you jump in, you'll you'll pick up on some themes that are that are in here. John is is big on affirming. Uh, Christian doctrine. He's big here on the importance of Christians loving one another. But one of the things that a lot of people miss when you really stop and you read this and you're very intentional and you're trying to mine it for what God is, is saying to us, it's very much about sin yeah, and the need for Christians to be different than the world. And it points out, you know, we are, we are different when the Spirit dwells in us and there should be evidence to the watching world that we are different. Yeah, and you can hear like John's very much pastoral, apostolic voice in mm-hmm. this. It's very like caring. Mm-hmm. Like he hits him with like my little children a couple of times, but then he hits him with like he's a, yeah, it's like a boxing match, and they're just <laughs> knocked out for a while. So it is interesting just to read this and hear a heart because I mean I don't hear this very much in mm-hmm. this world. Like, hey, sin sin's a big deal. Like like it matters. Mm-hmm. Like we need to work on this yeah. as a church. And it sounds like he's writing to, I mean. When you read it, you're going to be like, he's writing to us. Like, he wasn't originally, but it seems like the church he was writing to is very similar to where we're at, Mm -hmm. I think, as a culture and as a Christian denomination in this world. Yeah. So one of the distinctives of John and his writings, and this is general consensus with scholarship, is Paul is writing early. You know, Paul starts writing in the 40s, you know, within a couple of decades after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Paul's right out of the gates. The Gospels then start coming out, Mark, Matthew, Luke. Those are coming out, but John's writings generally are seen to be later. So like if you ever see a a painting of the Last Supper or you ever see John depicted in artwork, he's almost always, he looks very young. In fact, in a lot of the paintings, the early paintings, he looks female because he's, they they capture him as prepubescent. He almost looks like a woman. Oh, he's boyish. Because he was so young when he was called, and he writes his letters. Is that a bird? What is that? Yeah, that's a bird. <laughs> oh, he's right there. He's a blue jay in okay, the window. He's outside the window, at least. We don't have to worry about Gosh. like getting pecked from <laughs> we were, above. We were almost ending the I was podcast. Like, is, my, is that my chair squeaking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was very nervous. It I was, was apparently saying something wrong, and the Lord does not want people to hear that. Yeah, that blue jay is straight from God. <laughs> so anyway, here we go again. If it if it interrupts again, maybe maybe we'll just skip this part. Uh, but so John is traditionally captured as a young person, and he's thought to have written his gospel later than the other gospels huh. and these epistles later. And so toward the end of the first century, where a lot of other issues had begun to, to start plaguing the church, um, 
you know, and, and they're the same issues again and again in every generation, and a lot of them are the same in our generation. But John has seen some troubling things start emerging after the church has been around a while, specifically Gnosticism, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go through this epistle. Yeah, so this is like second-generation Christians now are, are <laughs> taking up the mantle, and there's just this kind of disconnect between what a person like John who saw Jesus saw the living body of Jesus and now what these heretical teachers are coming in teaching mm-hmm. these churches and so John's kind of like whoa 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 mm-hmm. let's back to the beginning like let's just right. start I, I saw this and let me tell you about sound doctrine absolutely okay. and so we can jump in actually with that starting at chapter 1 verse 1 and you'll notice that John's kind of, he's got a one-trick pony. So the same way that he starts the Gospel of John, which is, in the beginning was the Word. He's going to pick up on that, that same theme in First John chapter 1, when he says, that which was from the beginning. There it is again. He's, he wants you to understand that God existed at the beginning, and therefore because he brought about the beginning, he existed before the beginning. So this is the eternal God who caused the beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so John is picking up a a tool of the trade from Paul with a very, very long run-on sentence. (laughs) So those first four verses are all one sentence. They're one sentence in the Greek. And he is bringing up some major themes here, Will. For example... Uh, Gnosticism in the early church. If you were if you were to get into a time machine and you went back to the first century, second century, third century, what you would find is a culture that saw anything physical as evil, right? Like if you think about floating in a pool or you know your soul leaving your body, you immediately think, oh, like that sounds so wonderful, yeah. like freedom. Because what is the body? It's, it feels like a prison. It's yeah. falling apart. It's always aching. It, it gets defiled, it's caused, you know, it, it has diseases, it, it aches and broken bones, and it's always falling apart. So they saw the, the physical realm as something that was kind of by nature evil. Okay. And the spiritual realm, on the other hand, was good. And so the idea that God, who is a spirit, would become a man in an age where Gnostics ruled, where it was you know, Gnostics comes from knowledge, it's, it's like we know something— but the Gnostics would say to take on something that has material, it's bad. And so God would never become a man. And so there started to creep in all of these heresies that said, yeah, yeah, yeah Jesus came, but he wasn't a physical person. He, he was kind of a spirit, almost like a ghost, and he accomplished great things, but he didn't take on a body. And by the way, we're, we're not the resurrection stuff. No, no, no. We're going to get out of it. And what John is coming with, he's, he's doing a number of things. When he says, no, 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 we heard him. He had vocal cords. We looked at him. We touched him with our hands. Yeah. He's a real person. And why is that such a big deal? Why would it matter so much that Jesus became a man that you could touch? I mean, the crucifixion is based off of that. The crucifixion is based off of it. 
But there's so much that's based on it. So much is at stake because if Jesus didn't really become a man, then he couldn't represent us to go and make an atonement. He couldn't say, okay, I'll pay the penalties of mankind because I now stand in their place as a man. So the atonement gets demolished with that. But another thing that gets demolished is, you know, one of the beautiful things of the gospel is there's nothing that you experience in this life that your Savior can't say, I know what that's like. You know, it it says that he's been tempted in every way like we are and yet without sin, and he's a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Well, how can he sympathize? Well, he's walked in our shoes. He's been hungry. He's faced temptations. He knows what it's like to to walk this life as we walk. And so when you had this Gnostic heresy that comes along and says, well, Jesus didn't really walk in our shoes. Jesus can't really relate to what we're going through. He's just this kind of spiritual, you know, soul or disembodied thing who came and did some some amazing things. He took maybe the the apparition of a of a person but he wasn't physical. That started creeping into the early church, and it was a real problem. Yeah, do you think this is where even like our modern, like we have modern heresies. We, we mm-hmm. don't like mm-hmm. label them like Gnosticism, even though that's a lot of what it is. But do you think we get the whole idea of, hey, all Christianity is about is inviting Jesus into your heart, right? You, you say the prayer, and then you're mm-hmm. just trying to skip this next, however long you're on this planet, because... In a real Gnostic way, we think, oh, no, everything about this place is evil and wrong, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what we do here, because what did I do? I already prayed the prayer, Jesus. Like, <laughs> I'm going to heaven where mm-hmm. I will go back to what many believe, back to a spiritual world, which mm-hmm. we know is a Gnostic lie as well. But do you think that's where all this creeps back? Like, we're not that far from this. Mm-hmm. We may dress it up a little bit better. Yeah, so because we're familiar with the physical and most of the world we see is broken and painful and it hurts and, yeah. the, you know, things are not right here. So we think, you know, when, when the when the scriptures come to you and tell you that when you die, yeah, for a, for a while you're going to be disembodied. You're going yeah. to be in a spiritual realm as a soul. But the ultimate plan that you read about repeatedly in the scriptures is Jesus is coming back to bring about a new Jerusalem, to recreate a new heavens, a new earth, and you're going to be resurrected and given a physical body. You're going to eat again. You're going to dance again. You're going to do all these things with a physical body again. The natural instinct of man is, no, 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 I want to stay a spirit. I want to float around. I, wanna, yeah. I, wanna, I don't want to have the pains of being physical because we can't imagine what it would be like to be in a physical body without the fall. Yeah, the perfection. Yeah. Right. We don't. We can't imagine what it would be like mm-hmm. to work where things aren't frustrating. Like if I told you that you're going to have to work in heaven, you're like, no, 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 I don't want to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're going to work and things are going to be fruitful because the fall is not going to frustrate all of your labors. You know that feeling you get when you work and something gets accomplished and you're like, that was amazing. Look at what, look at what I've just created. Imagine that without all of the the frustrations that come with the fall, the futility of your work, the yeah. fact that, you know, second law of thermodynamics is tearing something down the moment you create it. Like it feels futile, but in heaven, all of that is wiped away. Everything about the physical realm is made right as it was supposed to be. And what John is coming to you and saying is, no, 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 no. The gospel is not just essential so that you know how to receive eternal life and go to heaven. Hmm. The gospel very, very much impacts the way you experience your life here and now before you die. It's the kingdom of heaven coming to a broken world 
through you, that needs to be a huge part of your perspective. Yeah, that's what we're going to see with John even throughout this letter. It's going to be, hey, look at God. This is who God is. And and here's our response to it as his people. It's very, mm-hmm. it's a pretty s- simple but drastically complex mm-hmm. live it out mm-hmm. moment. We won't push that past, but it is, he's pretty curt with a lot of these things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's speaking a language, like in the English translation with some of this stuff, it's hard for us to understand it the way that they would have heard things in the first century. So uh, let's let's look at one particular phrase that's at the end of verse 1, right? He says, look, I'm coming to you with a message concerning the word of life. And we hear that, and we hear, okay, well, word of life, that's, you know, we just think it like a spoken, you know, a word of life is, you know, the spoken gospel. I'm bringing you a message that brings life. But the word behind that, the the word, Greek word behind the word word, gosh, that's really weird to say, <laughs> is logos. And if you were to jump into a time machine yeah, and you went back to the first century and you went around and you said logos to people, they would have a very loaded meaning of what that word meant. Because you had philosophers, like, you know, 400 years before John or the gospel comes along, you have these famous philosophers, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all these other guys, and they're talking about, is there a reason or a purpose behind the universe, right? It's like, there, I see all of these things in motion and everything appears chaotic, but there's like one guiding principle, a law and everything abides by it. Like all human beings are 7 billion or whatever human beings on the planet, all living individual lives, and yet all of us age, all of us decline, all of us die. We all follow the same pattern. So there's like a unifying force to everything, even though everything seems random and separate. And so what they would say is there's there's some reason for everything. There has to be a guiding reason, and that was called the Logos. And so Brace yourselves. I'm going to get a little nerdy for a minute. I'm going to read some quotes to you because I want <laughs> I want you to understand the way they would have heard this. But the first time the Logos becomes a big deal, because remember, John's writing the Logos of life. The first time that becomes a big deal is a guy named Heraclitus who was writing around 475 B.C. He calls the Logos the hidden harmony of the entire universe. It's it's what makes... It's what exist that makes sense of all of creation and all of existence. And listen to what he says. He says, although the Logos is eternally valid, in other words, it's it's eternal and it's true, men are unable to understand it. Not only before hearing it, but even after they've heard it for the first time. That is to say that although all things come to pass in accordance with this Logos, men seem quite without any experience of it. So when John writes the John chapter 1 in this gospel, what does he say? In the beginning was the Logos. So the Logos is eternal. The Logos was God. The Logos was with God. And he goes on, and what does he say? It shined in the darkness, but men were unable to understand it. What John is saying is, Heraclitus, you're right. There is a Logos out there, but the Logos is a person. It's Jesus, right? Yeah, and you go on down down the line, and the, the Stoics, you've heard that expression, Stoics, yeah. the ancient Stoics, which was one of the major philosophies of the world called the Logos, the soul of the world. It was, it was the purpose behind everything. And here's where it gets really pretty profound. 
right before John and the generation right before John, you have a guy named Philo of Alexandria. He's a Jew, but he loves a Hellenistic philosophy. He never becomes a Christian that I know of. But listen to the way he describes the Logos. So here's a very, very famous Jewish philosopher. Very well, you know, people are reading his writings. He calls the Logos, get this, the firstborn of God. Hmm. So the Logos is the firstborn of God. And he says this also. He says the Logos of the living God is the bond of everything. It holds all things together. It binds all the parts, and it keeps them from being dissolved or separated. Now, that's what the early church believed about Jesus. You read Colossians, and Colossians 1 says Jesus is who? He's the firstborn of all creations. He's the Logos. He's the one that Philo and all these guys before him have been talking about. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when it says he's the word of life, he's the Logos of life, it's not just saying, hey, you know, in him there's a message that can get you to heaven. Yeah. No, what it's saying is, He's the, the, the hidden harmony behind all of existence. He is the, the operating principle that makes sense of the universe. In him, all things hold together. He's the firstborn of God become flesh. Like he is the reason, the purpose behind every ounce of existence. He's the logos. And so the first century would hear the logos of life, very loaded, not just eh, he's a word of life that can get you to heaven. Yeah, it's like, not the write-off like we have. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And it's a shallower definition. But John, when he says that, is telling us, like, in him is purpose for everything. He is the reason for your existence. And that's what Colossians says. You exist by him, for him, through him, right? He's the Logos. So now if you believe that every moment, everything you do, your job, everything exists for him, He's the Logos. He's what makes sense of life. It's much different than, hey, we found a guy who has a message that can get you to heaven. <laughs> yeah, here's a word. Yeah, yeah. It's it's far more profound than just that. And for them, the whole fact that he's, you know, John's not working on the fact that, like, this was a real person in flesh. Mm-hmm. Like, the Logos that we've been looking for has come, and I have mm-hmm. seen him, and now trust me, you may not have seen him if you're the second, third generation of this church, but I saw him. Now I'm going to proclaim to you exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your reason for existence, I've touched. Yeah. That's pretty wild. It is. You know, he's not just an abstract philosophy. This reason for your existence took on flesh and came and ate with people and loved people and hugged people. Yeah, and he was a baby. I was, was looking at baby. my yeah. baby and I was like, mm-hmm. yo, what kind of baby was Jesus? Yeah, really? Like, have you thought about that? Yeah, I've thought about like thought about how God is weak, can't lift his neck, poops his pants. Like, yeah. like that's wild to think of God humbling himself to that yeah, level. Yeah, like that changes you. When you know what, as a parent, what you do for this child, which you obviously don't know as a kid because you're a baby, you don't know anything. But when you look back at it from this perspective, you're like, whoa. Like that's real humility. That's yeah. not just like he skipped a step. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things, like the longer that I'm a Christian— the attribute of God, you know, you, you love his forgiveness and you love his love and his mercy and his grace and all that stuff. And that stuff's amazing and powerful. But the one that just surprised me is his humility. You know, I always grew up like, yeah, he's God. He's the big punisher. He's the judge. He's calling balls and strikes. It's, you know, all glory goes to him. And yet, like, he becomes a baby. Like, what? An embryo in a womb. Like, that's wild to me, and he gives his wealth away, and he endures homelessness, and he he suffers willingly. Like 
he's so humble. He has every reason to take every advantage and he sets them all aside and becomes a baby. Like, whoa. Yeah, the incarnation's like maybe the doctrine that is everywhere in Christianity mm-hmm. because it's hard not to it's hard to get around it, mm-hmm. but it's probably the one we think about the least in depth. Yeah. Like, like we just, I mean, that last 60 seconds was probably the most I've thought about in a long time. <laughs> and that wasn't, we didn't give it, you know, we yeah. didn't give it a lot there, but most of us, it's just like, so passe that like, mm-hmm. Oh, Jesus took on flesh, but like, no, like let's just sort through some flesh things <laughs> like, because it's huge mm-hmm. and it does show you the real humility of Jesus to mm-hmm. do this. But it, think about what it does to exalt your physical self. Yeah. Like think about this, that when God chose the incarnation, it wasn't just like, Oh, I'm going to take on flesh for a little while. The Lord is still a man in reigning in heaven. So when he took on the incarnation, essentially what he said is I've been a spirit for all of eternity. I am going to take on flesh and I'm not going back. I'm going to be a man for all of eternity to come and think about what that does to what's the, what's the word ennoble or whatever. Like you're be, God is a man, so now you can't say, "Well, the flesh." That's you don't want. The, God saw the flesh as yeah. something worthy for Himself, and He has married Himself. When He when He became a baby, He burned the the boat. Like He's not going <laughs> back to just being a spiritual force. He will be a man forever in heaven. Right now, as He has been ascended. Into heaven, he's pleading with humanity as a man. Yeah. He's one of us. That's wild to think about. Our God is not divorced from the human experience. He is one of us. And therefore, he pleads on our behalf. See, it's wild. It's crazy. Think about it for five minutes, people. (laughs) So John's like, hey, stop with this Gnostic stuff. Like, he was a man. He's one of us. He's reigning. He's at the right hand of God, the Father, the Spirit, in heaven right now, interceding, and he's sovereign, and he's been put in charge of everything. I've, I've grabbed hold of this guy. He's one of us. Don't cheapen it by saying, oh, you know, he's just, he's just a spirit. You know, he's, no, he can relate to you. He is incredibly eminent to humanity. Really, really pretty powerful. Yeah, and we don't have to fast forward through these years on earth now. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, fine, let's just get through this and get to the real goal. Like, mm-hmm. No, Jesus, by coming to earth, showed us that, you know, his public ministry was worthwhile. His Mm -hmm. life he lived on this earth was worthwhile. His flesh that he could be seen, he could be touched, he could be heard was Mm -hmm. worthwhile. So let's not waste that. And and you think about, you know, when, when you talk about how we're not just, you know, waiting for heaven. When Jesus came into this world, spirit took on flesh so that he could atone for our sins. Why? In part so that the Spirit of God could now come and dwell in flesh for us. So you have God who goes from Spirit to become flesh on the earth so that flesh on the earth could be inhabited by the Spirit of heaven, you know, the Spirit of God in heaven. And now it's like heaven has all these ambassadors all over the earth where the Spirit of God genuinely dwells in his people. And it's like when Jesus says, you will do more things than me. You're like, you hear that and you go, what? Well, the reason for that is he's not looking at one person and saying, you're going to do it. He's saying there's going to be thousands, millions, billions of you. And the spirit is going to dwell in all of you all over the globe. And so my hands and feet are going to be found everywhere all over the world. That's a pretty cool thought. Yeah, it's amazing. Now the flesh matters because that flesh houses the spirit. 
and the Spirit works using the flesh to advance his kingdom on every pocket of the globe. It's like it was all designed by Logos. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like right? This all matches up yeah. logically. It all matches up scientifically. There's, it makes Our sense. Our longings, mm-hmm. our desires. You see that none of it's wasted. Mm-hmm. It's cool stuff. Another thing that you find in, in verse 3 that I really like is he makes a big deal about finding fellowship, right? So notice in verse 3 it says, we proclaim him to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now that that word fellowship, the koinonia, it's it's a rich word. And if you remember in Acts two, one of the one of the passages that you hear all the time is that people sold all their goods and kept them in common and they all shared everything. Well, that idea behind common, it's open. Everybody has it. It's accessible to everybody. That's what he's saying. It's like when you have fellowship with us, everything is is yours. It's it's we we exist and we love each other. We're there for each other. We suffer together. We celebrate together. It's it's a fellowship. It's we a shared existence. And that's cool. You know, you hear that and you go, all right, well, that's that's nice. But listen to what it says next. And indeed, he doesn't just stop and say, hey, we have a fellowship with one another. He says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And so think about Acts 2 when it says, you know, everybody sold their possessions and we shared all things in common. What John is inviting you to see is God the Father's putting all of his possessions on the table. He's putting himself into the pot, and he's saying, hey, I'm yours. Like, have at it. Everything that I am, everything that I bring to the table, all that Jesus has purchased for you, all of the inheritance that belong to him is now shared in common, this fellowship, this koinonia. It's yours. There's nothing about God that does not, that you don't have access to. So take as much of him as you want. He offers himself freely. He wants you to take as much as you can possibly get with all of his fruit and all of his spirit and all of his attributes. They're yours. Take them. Limitless supply. And he's saying, take as much as you want. It's all there for the taking. I've essentially given away everything that I am and I'm yours. Come and take it. That's wild. Yeah, we like to think of God as stingy, but he's not. We just oh my goodness. don't. We just are like, ah, oh, I think we've had enough. But yeah. it's, he's not running out. No. He's not he's, like saying, this is what you get, Sam. This is what you get, Will, and dulling it out. He's like saying, no, everything right now in this moment you have access to because of what mm-hmm. Jesus did. Mm-hmm. I'm yours. I mean, there's several points in the scripture where, where the Lord essentially says, I'm yours. Like, you belong to me, and I belong to you. I'm absolutely yours take as much as you like. It's unbelievably generous. But, you know, we can envision what it means for, you know, let's say we get you and maybe 10 other guys and we say, hey, we're going to sell our houses and we're going to share everything. We're going to live in a commune that has all kinds of negative associations now. (laughs) But we're going to do this voluntarily and we're really going to support each other and we're going to do life together. You'd be like, okay, I can envision that. Stop for a moment and now I want you to imagine the God of the universe. Wow. says, yeah, I want you in my commune. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you everything I own. It's yours. Let's live together. And we're like, like, we don't treat that with the kind of unbelievable offer that that is. Like, that's wild that we're invited into that. Yeah, most of the time it, we make it sound like we're getting the short stick. Like, oh, yeah. God, what I'm sacrificing but for yeah. you on this earth is astounding. Like, how could you <laughs> ask for more? Yeah. And that, I mean, that's 
we don't say it as like that. Mm-hmm. But that's but how we, we live. It. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. they, I think that constant. Deep in our bones. All the time. We resent when he asks us to give something It's up. not even that deep. I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. if we're honest, like yeah. it's not deep in our hearts. We like to bury it a little deeper, but it's not. It's like, no, but when you put it like that, like, hey, an infinite amount of joy, an mm-hmm. infinite amount of peace, an infinite amount of whatever, fill in the blank, is being offered to you right now. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't ask you to do anything that he hasn't done to a far greater measure for you. Like that's, it's, that's what I mean. His humility, his generosity, it's, it's stunning. And then he says this, I'm writing this, right? We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So that at the heart of all this, like the, the, the motive behind all this, he's like, I want you to get your doctrine right. I want you to understand what's being offered to you. I want you to to live a life that is entirely sacrificial. This is the most worthy thing you'll ever be called to. And what's the motive for it? Like if you do these things, it's not like, oh, you know, we got to carry our crosses and give up everything and it's going to be. No, like when you do it, when you're living it, it infuses your existence with a sense of joy. Like you think about this, when you do the right thing or when you give a gift that's really costly to somebody, it blesses you more than them. I mean, almost always when you're charitable, when you're living the Christian life. I, I can remember this with evangelism. When I used to have to do EE, when, and I say have to because <laughs> I had to, um, when I was going through seminary, you had to do it for part of your degree. And I thought, wait a minute, we're going to go around on the streets and talk with people about Jesus. I'd rather like, I'd rather bury myself under that. That sounds so awkward. Get me out. Yeah. It feels very uncomfortable. And yet every time you'd go out at the end of the night, you know, you'd have professions, you'd have people who are like, okay, I want to learn more about Jesus. Or they'd say, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested. I'll, I'll come to church. You were on cloud nine by the end of the night. What, what felt really, really, really like a stretch. And it was a stretch when you were obedient and you lived for him and you stretched, man, there was so much joy, so mm. much joy. Yeah. We don't look at, and I think this is something that, now that you say this, that I need to remember, because what's going to follow is not going to feel like an invitation to complete joy. <laughs> like, I, like yeah, even like when right. we get to the next part, we're not going to think this is an invitation to completing the joy in my soul. <laughs> so I think I needed that reminder and I need to see it as that like John's mm-hmm. John's being honest with us. He's not you know pulling the wool over mm-hmm. eyes. He's saying, no, like what is going to follow in these next, you know, four and a half chapters is I'm inviting you to a complete joy. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like. What are you going to do now? But he he's not giving you a, a, a ridiculous sales pitch either. He's going to tell you. Yeah, it's he's going to prove it. You. Yeah, it's going to stretch you. There's going to be parts of it where it's like, oof. And yet the end result, if you will allow the Lord to take control and you'll surrender to him, the result is joy. And it's been the experience of my life. When I when I try to take the reins back, oh, that's when I get miserable. <laughs> when I surrender, that's when I feel joy. All right, so verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, so God is light. It's not saying, you know, that's kind of a weird formation of words, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Even I don't look at a light bulb and say, light bulb is light. Yeah. You know, like it radiates light, mm-hmm. like it produces light. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is John saying? What is John trying to get after us? Because if this is our first entrance into doctrine, like, okay, we have the flesh prologue, mm-hmm. but then we're getting into a very clear statement of, hey, here, John, here's what I want you guys to know, that God is light. Are we getting towards his character? Or is this like a 
I mean, there's so many different directions that you could take this. You know, God is light, I think, is definitely speaking to his purity. You know, if, if you hold up a light, there's no shadows. Like, you, it requires an obstruction by, by definition. There has to be an obstruction to light in order yeah. for there to be a shadow. Light doesn't cast shadows. And so what it's saying is God is entirely pure. There's no exception to this. There's nothing about him that's faulty. There's nothing about him that's unrighteous. But there's also so much more to that de- that metaphor when it says that God is light. And it's, it's you know, I, don't, I wouldn't say that this is literal and you look out your window and you see a light beam and you're like, oh, there's God. It's, it's a metaphor. <laughs> and what it's saying is light always triumphs over darkness. Light has a form. It's active. It moves where darkness is just the absence of light. It's, it's stagnant. It's empty. It's lifeless. It has no warmth to it. But light does. Light, if you, you know, light brings heat, light brings color. If you turn off all the light in a room, you won't know what color your shirt is. You won't know, you know, what colors are on the painting that's so beautiful. For that painting to be beautiful, it requires light. So God is the source of all beauty. He's the source of all warmth. Without light, you have no life. He's the source of all life. So there's so much that's communicated when you say God is light. I mean, there's so much to that. He's the source of life, warmth, beauty, all those things. And in him, there's nothing wrong. There's no darkness whatsoever. Yeah, that's a huge part, right? It's perfection. Mm -hmm. It's like it's hard to wrap our minds around. We say that a lot, and this is obviously when we're talking about the things of God. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know what it's like Mm -hmm. to have no darkness in us at all. Like everything we do is Not till glory. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything we do right here now on this earth is tainted. So when we're thinking about that, it's causes us to look at God differently than mm-hmm. we look at each other. Yeah. He's holy. He's altogether different than than we are. And it goes on. So this is the, the application. So he's saying God is pure. He's absolutely perfect. There's no imperfection in him at all. Then he jumps and he says, okay, now let's turn toward you. <laughs> in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So... Salam, you know. Here's what we're talking about. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you don't sin. It doesn't mean that you don't stumble. But I think what John is getting at is if you walk, and and that's another way in in ancient cultures of saying if you're living in darkness and you're content to just remain in darkness and you lie and do not practice the truth. If you're if you're claiming, you know what, I love Jesus, my life is surrendered to him, I've received his saving work, and yet I'm totally content dwelling in a kingdom of darkness and living for the world and living for all its imperfections and impurities. And there's no struggle in me that says, I, you know, I want better for this. I want to live a life better than this. And there's no spirit at work in you that's compelling you to change. Then the spirit's not in you. Yeah. You can't be content to just walk in darkness. And if you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, and yet I'm totally content. There's no struggle in me. I'm happy in the darkness you're deceived. You're not a Christian. You're you're not saved, um, and you're not practicing truth. Yeah, you only walk in darkness if, for two reasons. One, that you're so blind to darkness that you don't know that there's light and darkness. So mm-hmm. you're actually just unaware that the Spirit hasn't moved in your life enough and mm-hmm. hasn't transformed your soul to even realize that you are in darkness. Mm-hmm. Or it's the fact that the Spirit doesn't convict you, mm-hmm. like that you're okay behaviorally being in complete darkness. Mm-hmm. 
And that's where there's come. If you feel the conviction of the spirit, you might you might have a besetting sin that you are at war with, and it keeps you know having victories over you. But you keep fighting, and you keep going to war, and you keep trying your your level best to surrender everything to the Lord. You, you know, you're listening to a podcast that's being produced by two people that sin all the time. You know, but there's a war in us. You know, there's a war that says, gosh, I did it again. I need to, I need to lay this down before the Lord. He, you know, I want to live a life that, that exalts him and, and pleases him. And there's a war inside of us with the darkness. Paul talks about that. You know, you're at war. There's a war between the flesh and the spirit. You can expect that. The flesh is still very powerful. Wickedness and pride and all that stuff, still very powerful in us, but there should be a war. So verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his sons, cleanses us from all sin. And I want you to hear there, you have sin to be cleansed from. Yeah, you know? walking in the light is not the absence of sin. Correct. If you're walking in the light, well, who's the light? The light is God, remember? He's the one that shows all the imperfections. You don't see imperfections without the light. The light is shining on you. You sense that. You see your imperfections. You're seeking forgiveness. And then in that context, man, the fellowship with other sinners that are seeking a Savior, that are humble and in recognition that they have blemishes and we're coming together and being cleansed under the blood of Jesus, and he then cleanses you from all sin. It's an invitation to the fellowship that says, God is light and I've got darkness and I need his presence. That brings people together when you recognize that you have a common problem and a common Savior. It binds you together in fellowship. Yeah, he's describing the fellowship he already talked about. Mm -hmm. And that is a cool way to describe fellowship. I mean, we don't describe friendship like that very yeah. often, but it is this, this, hey, you can be vulnerable because you're both walking the light. Like, mm -hmm. you're going to be seen <laughs> in this. Like, your fellowship is close enough where you both are in the sunshine and the brother could see what you're going through, how you're acting and how you're living. Mm -hmm. But also it's one that understands that, you know, there's a Jesus who did this mm -hmm. where we have fallen. And that that's that word, man, koinonia... It, you know, a friendship, you know, when we hear that word, it's like, you know, we go out, we hang out, it's we passive. have some common interests, you know, this word means I'm all in, like I'm sharing everything of mine, my heart, my soul, my flaws, my everything. Like I'm an open book. We're doing life intensely together. That's the kind of fellowship. And I'm telling you, like as a, as a preacher, as a pastor, Will, you know this too, the thing that draws men to long for the gospel is when they hear somebody say, I struggle with this, and here's my story, here's my scars, here's my wounds. Because everybody, especially in this culture of social media, it's like, no, 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 I've got the perfect life, and I've got it all together. And, and in reality, behind the scenes, we're all crushed, and we're falling apart in a million different ways. When Christians are vulnerable enough to share their story and their pain and their failures. It's, it's like a magnet. It's, it's moths to a flame where other people go, wait a minute, you, you suffer that too, and you've found a way for it to be healed and for it to be forgiven and for you to find liberty from it. That is so alluring to a world that feels this compulsion to hide and com compartmentalize their life. When it's saying fellowship, back to my original point, when it's saying koinonia, it's you're all in. 
Like you don't have to hide anymore. You are so intimately connected with a group of people that you share everything in common, your loves, your joys, your tears, all of it. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it is kind of amazing how he's just walking us through all this, like this whole idea of fellowship and the joy being complete mm-hmm. in this fellowship because it takes off all the weights off our shoulders. It's saying like, mm-hmm. hey, no, no longer is this defined by light and darkness as perfection and imperfection. Mm-hmm. No, darkness is defined as like chasing after the world, chasing after yourself and, and no care or concern for what the Spirit's doing or what the Lord wants to do. Mm-hmm. But walking in the light is going to give you true fellowship because I can be vulnerable. I can be open. I can say, hey, this is actually who I am. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't match up to the holiness of God because God is light and I'm not. But there's a Jesus who mends the gap. Mm-hmm. And by the way, remember who else we have fellowship with. God and all of his mercy and grace and his yeah. abundant righteousness says, here, it's yours. Come share with me. Like, you're being called into a, a life where you get to let go of all the shame and guilt and everything else that plagues us. You're being called into a fellowship with God and his broken, redeemed people. And he goes on, and he, it's like he's saying, now, just so you don't think that I'm being the legalist, I don't, I don't want you to think that, yeah. oh, in order for you to be a part of our people, you have to be pure light, because until glory, you won't be. <laughs> in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so what is he saying? If you're content in the darkness, and you say you're a Christian, you've deceived yourself. You can't be content in the darkness. But on the other hand, if you say you don't struggle with sin, yeah. every bit on that direction— then you are not a part of us. And so he's hitting with a perennial issue that plagues the church, which is on one side you have people who say, oh, we're under grace. We don't have to do anything to, you know, I don't have to worry about my behavior. I don't have to die to self. I don't have to be holy. I can just live however I want. And they go off the deep end on the antinomian side where they dismiss the purpose of the law entirely. And then the other side where the legalists that say, no, I'm good enough and I measure up to God. And what John is saying is, hold on a minute. If you're content in the darkness, you're not with us. But if you say that you have no darkness, if you say you don't sin at all, you've totally missed the boat and you're not with us in that situation either. You have to recognize I'm broken and I do sin, and yet I'm not content in that sin. Mm -hmm. That's where you find fellowship. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. I felt like John and my reading was calling out like the things that I've allowed that I would call sin, but like are, are just common sins in my own life. Mm-hmm. Like, like whatever it is in this moment, but the ones that are kind of like, ah, that used to feel like something, but now there's no, f- like, you know, that, that can show me and moving mm-hmm. more towards darkness. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the one where it's like, no, there's sin. Like, don't just be like, ah, not that big of a deal. Yeah. Like don't deceive yourself in that way. Cause that's, that's the slippery slope. Like mm-hmm. that, that's what starts to decline. You get numb to it. Yeah. yeah. Like it starts with the small stuff and it starts with, you know, the, the common ones in our American Western world of greed and comfort and control mm-hmm. and, you know, value and modesty or, you know, whatever it is mm-hmm. that our culture is just like, hey, you guys were you guys were pretty uptight about this. So just come <laughs> come closer to our side that seeps in mm-hmm. unwittingly in our lives. So mm-hmm. that's when we're like, OK, no, well, well that's deception. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, when you give it comfort and you're numb to it, you'll find before long you're enslaved to it and it's making you miserable. You're yeah. serving it. And so. The gospel comes to free you from all that stuff, and so then in verse nine, man, I, this is one of the this is one of the refrigerator magnet verses. You hear this all, all the time if you've been in the church for long, but it's rich. John writes, "If we confess our sins, He is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, hear that, all unrighteousness. Hmm. So what's what's your role in it? Is it, oh, I've got to make up for this by doing a bunch of good stuff? No, no, no. What does he say? If we confess your sins, that's, that's what you do. <laughs> he then is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Like, this is a pretty good deal. You know, it's calling on you to be humble, to, to acknowledge your sins and to feel the weight of them and to lay them down. And then God says, I got you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cleanse all of those sins. And I was listening to, to somebody talk not long ago, and they brought out something in this verse that like blew me away that I'd never thought about before. But it's, when you read this, when it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He gives you know two words. If he he is then faithful and just. He says just there. But I want you to stop for a moment. Pretend like you haven't heard this verse for a million times. And I'm gonna you know pretend like it's Mad Libs or something. Fill in the blank. <laughs> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and like you wouldn't put just there, right? You, like you want to say he's faithful and forgiving. He's faithful and merciful. He's faithful yeah. and gracious or long-suffering, patient, something like that. But justice, like if we confess our sins, I don't want God to be just. Like, the, yeah. uh, No, just means that he looks at me and smashes me in the face for what I've done, like a just judge. But this is where the gospel is so precious because what is he saying? If we confess our sins, if we're in Christ, then all of those sins have already been atoned for. The penalty for every single sin I've ever committed and ever will commit has already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And so then, what does that mean? That means that when I go before the Lord and I'm in Christ and I say, man, I have sinned again, it's justice that keeps the Lord from punishing you because he's already punished Jesus. And therefore, the justice has been paid and it would be unjust for him to then punish the same sin again. And so it's justice that you've already been bought. You've already been purchased. Your sins have already been atoned for. You're free. Hmm. It's now justice that you go before the Lord and say, here are my sins and they've been paid for. I'm walking out of the courtroom a free man. Like it's justice that gives you liberty now because Jesus has paid for it all. I've always, that's, I love that. And so he's faithful every time he's going to forgive you and he's going to cleanse you from your sins. Walk in that liberty. Yeah, that verse makes a lot more sense in context. Like you see, you know, First mm-hmm. John 1, 9 a lot. And obviously, beautiful verse. Mm-hmm. But when you see how he's setting all this up and this is, you know, the back end of that conversation that he's having, mm-hmm. it is more beautiful. You can see the depths of what flesh filled Jesus did. Yeah. You know, like it's not just this confession is just out of nowhere. And, you know, there's a God somewhere up there is a spirit who's just like forgiving some and not forgiving others. Mm-hmm. And he's just deciding in the moment, but he's saying, no, like all of this is based again on what I've seen, mm-hmm. what I've heard and what I proclaim to you now is you can rest easily in this mm-hmm. confession. So think about that in terms of if you're walking in the light, if you're having fellowship with God and you're entitled to all of his treasures because he's put them out there, koinonia, and they're now yours, you get to appeal to the justice that he provided for you. You get to you get to make that appeal. You're you're entitled to all the treasures that he has for you. And so what he's saying is, you know, don't go off the deep end of the legalist. That's not who we are. And don't go the way of the antinomian. That's not who we are. Humbly come and acknowledge that there's a reason why Christ had to go to the cross for you. 
come with your imperfections and you get to walk away on the other side absolutely free and perfectly spotless in the sight of God. That's, that's amazing. It's, it's incredible freedom. It's the only place in this existence where I know that kind of freedom is available. Hmm. Yeah, you're not wondering when you walk away. Mm-hmm. Like even any human forgiveness. Yeah. And there's always that little inkling, you know, yeah. big or small. You're always like, well, that could have been deceptive. Totally. And and then there's sometimes where, you know, before I really began to understand, and even still now, just because of my human nature, like there's so many times where I go before God and I'm like, man, I just, I don't know if you can forgive this one. Mm-hmm. You know, I really screwed up, man. I don't even know if I should be called a Christian. Like, yeah. look at, look at this, look at this, look at this. Like what this does is it, is it saying, hold on a minute, like you get to appeal to justice. This isn't you going before a God groveling saying, I don't know if this is going to be worthy of forgiveness. It's Jesus saying, no, 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 I paid for that. I paid for that. You're free. You, you don't come groveling. You don't wonder whether or not God hmm. is going to forgive you or not because justice requires God to forgive you of that because Jesus already paid. So stop groveling. Stop wondering whether or not God can forgive you. Your sin has already been paid for. Justice has already been served. Walk in freedom now. Yeah, and sometimes I feel like I come in like fake pride. <laughs> like, you know, like, like I fake try. Pride. Not, not, wait, maybe that's a bad way to say that. Fake humility? Yeah. We're pretty, yeah, we're pretty good at the real, real deal yeah, yeah, yeah. With, uh, okay, with pride. Yeah. But it, it seems like it seems like I'm coming more pious when I do that. Like like in sometimes when I'm asking for forgiveness or I'm confessing stuff, it's more of like the pride is actually me going like I'm trying to hang myself up on the cross that you already did the work on, mm. Jesus. That's like good. I'm trying to put myself up there and I'm totally disregarding what you've already historically mm-hmm. done and what you tell me to do constantly. Mm-hmm. So by me like feigning this humility, it, it looks like I'm being pious, but that's not what I'm called to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm called to confess and to trust that Jesus is faithful and just because he already did the work. Like, it's actually, you know, totally wrong of me to say, hey, God, I don't know about this one. Mm-hmm. You know, like Jesus, maybe Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough for this one. Like, mm-hmm. there, there's something untouchable that you've given me in that. And what we, like, God's heart for us is so much wanting us to be healthy and liberated from shame and guilt and all that stuff. Have you ever had a relationship where, where you're at odds with somebody and you have something to confess and it's eating away at you and it's wrecking your relationship and you go to them and you finally say, look, man, I got something to confess. This has been eating away at me. And they just look at you and they give you a hug. Yeah. Like ever, like it's such a freeing thing. It makes you love that person more. It's, it's amazing and it's exhilarating and you feel the freedom. The moment that hug comes like the Lord is delighted when you trust him enough to bring your very worst and lay it down before him, because his response is, is a hug. It's to want you to walk away in freedom, knowing that you're safe and that you're loved. And then to, to it's worship that you trust him enough to lay down your worst shame and say, I'm trusting you with this. You know, I trust that your son has atoned for all this and that I'm yours and that you love me as you say you do. That's worship. Repentance is worship. Hmm. And he delights in it. He wants you to feel liberated. He's just good like that. He's a really, really good God. And so he goes on, verse 10, it says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You'll notice John says that a lot. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's... You know, like how many times in this chapter he's been like, If you do this, you're not one of us. 
Well, that's another one. If you say you have not sinned, you make Jesus a liar because he says everyone has sinned. And if you say you haven't sinned, you make him a liar and your word, his word is not in you. Yeah, he breaks it down pretty simply. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. theme is like light and dark, which, yeah. is a, which are pretty obvious things, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm never wondering if the light's on. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's something yeah. that's like, no, it's on. You yeah. can either see it or you can't. He's pretty much just like, like, let's not make this so complex. He's going to give us more of these as the chapters go on. But he's like saying like, no, this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And this is what it doesn't look like. So don't be deceived. I've said this before in other episodes, I'm sure. One of the knocks on Christianity is it's always telling you you're bad. I want everyone to understand the flip side of that. You don't need convincing (laughs) that you're bad. One of the great struggles of humanity is we don't measure up to our own standards. We're constantly letting ourselves down. We're constantly failing other people. We don't live up to our own standards that we put upon other people. And if we objectively and fairly judge ourselves, we say, man, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not as good a husband as I want to be. I'm not as good a father as I want to be. I'm not as good of a friend as I want to be. I want to be better. Well, why do you say that? Because you're not as good as you should be. And so what God is saying, when he comes and says, all of you are sinners, and if you say you haven't sinned, you make him a liar, that should be incredibly liberating because what it means is God is not fooled by you. He doesn't look at you and say, well, I thought they were good, but (laughs) look at them now. I don't want them on my team. No, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He looked at you, knew all your mess, knew everything about you, knew all of your faults, all of your blemishes and everything else, and said, they're mine. I, I want them. I'm willing to die for them. And so w- when Christ says you're a sinner, can you please take that as like, oh, he knows. <laughs> I don't have to hide. I don't have to put on the mask. I don't have to do the Facebook and Instagram dance where I'm trying to convince mm-hmm. God that I'm better than I am. He knows. I don't have to hide. And yet, even though he knows, he cherishes me and treasures me so much that he'd give his own life. I don't have to pretend anymore. He wow. wants me to have freedom. That is true. The shocking part of Scripture is not yeah. where it tells us that we've sinned. I don't need, I don't even need you to tell me that I've said, like, I can tell myself that enough. Like, I don't need anybody else outside of my own brain mm-hmm. to just keep the soundtrack in my mind of being like, oh, you don't deserve this. No, you are exactly what you think you are. Mm-hmm. What we need is like you're saying for John to break in say, hey, no, he's faithful. He's just mm-hmm. confess. So when the scriptures come and they say, and they say this about every hero besides Jesus in the entire book, all of them have fallen short. All of them. And yet, he loves us enough that he would pick up our shortcomings, he'd pick up all of our flaws, he would go to the cross, and all of that would be imputed to him. And he would suffer to defeat it, and he would take his perfection, that pure light, and he would say, here, this righteousness is now your own. And that's why Jesus can look at his church, even though God is light, Jesus can look at his church and say, you are the light of the world right? So now shine, shine brightly. This gospel has implications for this world and the here and now. Live and let the Spirit shine in you and through you to a world that is desperately in need of some light. Yeah, because don't you think our cultural moment right now is one that is deceiving ourselves that we're good and we're not? Like we're fighting all these battles about Mm -hmm. Literally everything under the sun. I mean, you name it. There's a battle being fought, and one side says I'm good, one side said says I'm evil, mm-hmm. and and we're just fighting these revolving battles. But we're just deceiving ourselves about the real fight in all of this. 
So they just did a survey and they released, this is evangelicals from ages 18 to 49. So this is both of us actually included in that. Yo, yo. I'm glad to be able to be included in your generation every once in a while. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> but anyway, 71% believe that we are all born innocent in the eyes of God. Whoa. Right? That we're basically good. <laughs> Who's this from? This is uh, Ligonier. Oh, so they did a, they a did their research state too. of theology and all that stuff. But this same survey with that same age group, you know, we believe all kinds of crazy stuff, like 37% of evangelicals. This is evangelical. that's a hard category to self-describe as. Yeah, so you believe that the Word of God is authoritative, okay? Yeah, it's a that's pretty big That's what you claim yeah. to say. But 37% of evangelicals of that age group believe that you can define your own gender. Like, there's things like that where, you know, we are we are so desperate. We're sliding yeah. in our battle for the truth. And one of those that we should not, I mean, John says it. If you say that you're not a sinner, you're not a Christian. You can't be. It makes no sense. Why would you need a savior? You know, it, it all falls apart. Like you're not sinless. Yeah. And that's it's okay. That's why Jesus came and died for you. Yeah. John doesn't hit us with the bad news without the good news too. Yeah. The other part of that, and, and I, we're on the verge of running long, but the other part of that is if if I say, you know what, like God loves you because you're good enough, yeah. then the rest of your existence I'm stressed. Is, is this, seriously, it's a slavery to say, oh my goodness, I got to preserve this. I, I can't mess up because if wow. I mess up, then I lose the love of God. And, and, and all of my hope of salvation and all of my hope of heaven is entirely built upon whether or not I am good enough and whether or not I can keep up all of this stuff. And you, it will feel like slavery, and it'll crush you, and the gospel comes along and says, your hope of heaven is not about your righteousness. Mm -hmm. It's about mine, God speaking. It's, it's about Jesus. And now you cannot lose your salvation because your hope of salvation wasn't built upon your righteousness. Wow. It was being part of a fellowship that has afforded to you all of the blessings that Christ lays down, which includes his righteousness, if you will but come and say, I need you. I'm a mess, and I need you. And with that, the treasures of heaven open up and pour upon you, and God will give you his spirit that will enable you to begin to live a life that shines light in the world. Wow, that's really beautiful. Even at 28 years old, I know that this world does need one more thing relying on will. Ugh. You know, like, I feel the same. Like, like, and I don't need one more thing relying on me. You know, just mm -hmm. like I don't need to control more, even though I feel that and I strive for that. Like mm -hmm. in the honesty of moments in my life, it's like, oof, if this is all based off of you, Will, this is not going <laughs> to this is not going well. Yeah. Yep. The world's in trouble if it's if it's up to us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's another thing that's cool is God uses imperfect vessels yeah. to pour his spirit in. And if we will but let the Spirit work through us, you know what? God can use Sam and Will to do pretty amazing things in this world, but not in our strength. Yeah, it's when we relent and rely upon Him working yeah. in us and through us. So, that's First John chapter 1. I guess we're going to go chapter by chapter, even though the church isn't. <laughs> it's not what we planned for. So anyway, do you have a good word for us to end on? No. All right, well, that's a good word. Yeah. No, no is a good word, I guess. Well, it's fine. We'll let that stand as the last word. <laughs> I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, that it's been good for you. 
we serve such an amazing God. We really, really do. We are so very, very blessed to call him our Savior. And if we would just grab hold of what he offers, this life would be far more beautiful, far more peaceful. And as John makes that promise, your joy would be complete if you just grab hold of him Hmm. and all that he offers. So thank you so much for joining us. We will be back next week with 1 John chapter 2. Thank you, Will, for standing in on short notice. Always a pleasure. See you later. Have a good week, everyone. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water. Thank you.